Hello, and thank you for joining me for the second in this new series of podcasts from Faber. My name is George Miller, and every month I'll be bringing you interviews with writers talking about their latest work. Later in this programme, Peter Carey will be discussing His Illegal Self, his latest novel which is set on the margins of 1970s counterculture in New York and Australia. The real point of the book is that, you know, to have the reader swimming in a river of words, and that, uh, that's how the words work and how mm. the words sing that really is the thing. And biographer Frances Wilson will be telling me about her iconoclastic new life of Dorothy Wordsworth. I mean, what's extraordinary, I think, about the way she's been represented in biographies, either of her alone or of um, group biographies with the other romantics, is that she's gone through some kind of biographical lobotomy, whereby she's been stripped of having any unconscious life, any sexuality, any desires of her own. She's just, she just is William Wordsworth's unconscious life. We begin today with Adam Mars Jonesy's eagerly awaited new novel, Pilcrow. Both novels featured in today's programme are concerned with childhood, but whereas Peter Carey's young hero, Che, embarks on a journey that spans two continents, John Cromer, in Adam Mars Jonesy's book, is confined to bed throughout much of his childhood. Before we got on to the challenges which that poses for a novelist, I asked Adam to explain the title of the book. It's that gothic-looking backwards P which starts some Bible sections and is also on most word processors to mean non uh, display non-printing characters. And that being so, the fact that my character is very much a non-printing character in the sense mm. that he's such a marginal person that he wouldn't normally get a look in. And here he's given the whole point of view of a large book. So I, I think the fact that the he chooses the book as the symbol for himself in the first paragraph, that turned out to be irresistible. And he is fascinated by those anomalous characters. All those things which fall outside the regular 26 letters of the alphabet are absolutely fascinating to him. He, he's, a, he's a pedant because his control over facts has to stand in for his control over events. He's very weak physically. He has very little uh, in the way of options on a day-to-day -day basis. So the mental play he gets from the idea that there are more letters, that there are different ways you can, uh, you can inflect a sound or present a character uh, is all fueled to his life's project, which is to control his life as much as he can, which he does basically by, by knowing more than other people and also by charm. So it, it allows me to more or less go into seduction overdrive. And he grows up in the 1950s. So we, most of the book occurs from the mid-50s to the mid-60s. And it's a very different world, isn't it? That's something which struck me from the contemporary world in terms of how children are raised, particularly children who suffer from illness. Yes, uh, I mean, the, there, was, there was no idea of abuse that certainly, I mean, I haven't researched in it to find when the word child and abuse came together to become a sort of defining crime. But at the time, it was felt to be more worrying if you spoil children. And I, I speak, to, I'm born 1954, not 1949. And I was, I was brought up with, you know, in, in comfort. But still, there was the sense, that whole culture of eat your bread and butter before you have your cake, which would be quite impossible for children or even young people now to understand was relatively recent. Now, you have a, a, a hero who has severely reduced mobility. Mm. That must present problems for a narrative, for a, a novelist. Obviously things have got to be happening other than on the purely physical domain. Yes, because at the same time it does 
determine some of what you do with the narrative. I remember Angela Carter saying that particularly first-time novelists spent an awful lot of time getting people into a room. With my character, getting into the room is the scene, or, or at least you can't skip it. Uh, this is a life without shortcuts, and I felt that in writing about it, I had to respect that, and I couldn't suddenly say a year later. Everything had to be linear, and even though there can be a tremendous sense of claustrophobia reading about that, I hope that there's also a sense gradually of that changing in a sort of sense of, of the richness within mm. those restrictions. But it means he's got a very rich inner life, so it, the things happening in his head are compensating for what's not happening in his physical existence. Yes, and uh, that doesn't mean that uh, I imagine anybody would envy him, but certainly I think there's a distinctiveness in his take on things. And even though he has anything but a bird's eye view, he has almost a worm's eye view looking up uh, from the bed, uh, the adults around him and the world around him, uh, I do want his point of view to have a sort of authority, not to be just sort of cutely misunderstanding. I do want to show that he's part of the world even because he, even though he's at the very edge of it, because without that the book couldn't work. The whole premise of the book is that there is a wholeness in this life, even though it is a life that seems entirely made up of negatives. And a lot of his energies go into understanding, making sense of what's going on around him. I, I suppose is the case with any child growing up, but in his case it's particularly acute because the data he gets are so in some ways limited or in, in some ways easy to misconstrue. There's a lot, there's a lot about misconstruing in this book, isn't there? And yes, no, mishearing no, things no, and nothing, nothing fatal, uh, I don't think. In fact, he does seem uh, quite good at working his way, uh, at sort of creating a working model of the family, creating a working model even of sex, which is made uh, very difficult by his circumstances. And one thing that may alienate some readers is I give him religious faith and of a non-Christian sort. So, uh, I mean, the implication is that he's looking back on his life from a, from a perspective that has become explicitly Hindu. Uh, but I wanted to have a way of talking about pain and deprivation that didn't regard it sacrificially, which Christianity tends mm. to do, that it's either a punishment or it's something you take upon yourself for the benefit of other people. I wanted him to be part of a religious tradition which regards pain as unreal. Mm. And uh, you know, clearly that's quite high risk. And it also puts my hero in one more minority uh, when you might have thought that uh, he was in enough already. I, I wondered about the Hinduism. I wondered because you're quite guarded about how much you say about his later life because the, the book takes him up to the age of 16. And we get hints about things which have changed or things which have influenced him later. But he holds back or you hold back from, from giving too much away about... You know, there's, there's nothing about a conversion to Hinduism, but you get the language of Hinduism sort of seeping through. You can't remove hindsight from a narrative of when somebody's talking about their, their own past. And I'm um, clearly Joyce's breakthrough in Portrait of the Artist was to have something other than hindsight. I think before then, or perhaps some Dickens, there was almost nothing in uh, narratives of childhood from the point of view of the adults they became that didn't entirely take the register of you know, what I remember of my grandfather as the tickling sensation of his, of his uh, whiskers, his dundreary whiskers against my infant cheek. Mm. Uh, the fact that Joyce broke with that and could come with such extraordinarily uh, direct things as when you wet the bed, first it is warm, then it is cold. But I think that that can become affected if pursued too far. And particularly if you are dealing with somebody's life when seen from 
a, a future state, then I thought you may as well embrace the hindsight. Try not to make it too predictable. So have a sort of wash of the linguistic sophistication and indeed the adult awareness but then every now and then reveal you know the childish suffering or the bafflement or the, inc the incomprehension uh, underneath it all. I also really liked Dr Edward Bach who is used as a kind of way of interpreting human character types. Yes I, I can't remember how he went about it did he he did something like he he took all the uh, all the medications himself, all the tinctures in the 20s, and more or less reported how they altered his behaviour somehow, and then wrote the 12 healers, mm. and then later there was... Uh, uh, that's the other thing, is that my, my character is fascinated with alternatives. Mm. Uh, so uh, he spends a lot of his time grappling with, uh, with orthodox medicine, even though at the time that I'm writing about, bed rest was still felt to be a key part of the medical armory and I, I can remember my mother having my younger brother and being immobile for two weeks mm. now that would be felt to be in real risk of a thrombosis and of losing muscle tone and so forth so by the time after two weeks bed rest when you put your feet to the floor you do feel ill so it confirms the idea that childbirth is a form of illness but it isn't, or and no doubt we're making our own mistakes at the moment. But I, I, I wanted him to, to have a sort of constant interest. The moment something was proposed as the obvious way to do things, his mind immediately looks for an alternative. So I suppose you could say for, uh, for heterosexuality, there's homosexuality. For uh, allopathy, there's the Bach system. Mm. Uh, and for Christianity, there's Hinduism. I mean, he's always rejecting the obvious path. And we've talked about the pill crow, the, the sign, and his interest in typography. And we talked about mishearings. And also, his mother is very sensitive and sensitises him to the, the class nuances of language. <clears throat> and the great, he's got to speak one language with his, his parents and another language with other children. And there's a great deal of sensitivity to, to how you express yourself in the book. Well, again, it's, it's because the, co the context changes around him. Uh, he doesn't move freely from one social zone to another. Uh, so he does live a double life without really, from most people's point of view, having much of a life in the first place. But there's also the theme of, of, of doubleness, you know, the fact that there's one place he lives where it's not clear which of two counties it's in. Mm. Uh, and that sense that things are, are both and neither clearly appeals to him in the short term because he wants everything to be settled. He wants there to mm. be, uh, uh, I mean, there's one passage where he says, I was at a time when I really needed to know for sure one way or another, I was very Newtonian. And as time's gone by, I've come to relish things not being fixed. But certainly you can see how as part of his psychology, the need to know where you are yes. is terribly important. That was Adam Mars Jones, whose novel Pilcrow is out now. My next guest is Frances Wilson. Her previous book was The Courtesan's Revenge, a life of Harriet Wilson described as the most desired and dangerous woman in Regency London. Her latest subject is William Wordsworth's sister, Dorothy, who on the face of it seems a much tamer prospect. After all, previous lives have presented Dorothy as self-effacing almost to vanishing point. Yet in her own day, Coleridge compared her emotional sensitivity to an electrometer, and Thomas de Quincey described her as the very wildest person I have ever known. As Frances Wilson told me, nowhere is Dorothy's emotional complexity more on display 
than the day of William Wordsworth's marriage. It had been a day she'd been building up for, for uh, about about three years. As long as she'd known that William was going to get married, she'd been waiting for that particular event. And so it, it, it took on a huge amount of kind of loaded and over-determined significance in her mind, to the, to the point of collapsing in, a, in this sort of strange trance-like state that she was in at the same time that the marriage was going on. It was also, I mean, it was, a, it was a moment of great ambivalence for her because she was happy and miserable at the same time. And so the way I sort of describe it in the, um, in the journal, it was a marriage and a funeral. She says in the journal she saw two men, I think, coming back up the path. Yes. And yes. she knew it was over, and it's she ambiguous it over. It's what she's talking about. Yeah, and it's an interesting moment, because the way she describes it in the journals is so extraordinary. The most shocking moment for her of that whole day is looking out of the window and seeing, because everything for Dorothy Wordsworth is organised around seeing. She can only believe something if she's seen it, I and mean, she's a very, very visual person. And when she says, I looked out of the window and saw them coming to tell me it was over, and it was over, what does she mean? it was over and it's what exactly was over the wedding was over her life was over was over and then she has this moment of terrible terrible realization when what she sees confirms that it's over her relationship with william is over but that's not nearly as strange as what happened before what, yes, what preceded it was <laughs> yes. of, I mean, of equal or greater intensity what happened before was so extraordinary it was actually scored out of the journal by um either by dorothy or by william or by mary hutchinson or by a subsequent um a subsequent editor who just didn't want readers of um these journals to see this but what Dorothy describes in about three sentences is this strange kind of early morning ceremony where before William goes off to get married to Mary Hutchinson he comes into her room at the farm and she says she that he takes from her finger the wedding ring which she's been wearing all night which is quite interesting and slips it from her finger onto his finger. And then she slips it off his finger and back onto her mm. finger. And so it's as if they're marrying one another. And then she says, he blessed me fervently, which is a strange sort of a strange expression. What, what's a fervent blessing? I mean, if you think of a blessing as being something without any fervency, it sounds, it sounds sort of weirdly sort of erotic but it's a very and it's a very strange thing to write and obviously an extremely embarrassing thing to write and you can see why you know if Wordsworth scored it out it's because he couldn't bear for Mary Hutchinson to know mm. or if the a subsequent reader scored it out it was because it's not what anyone wants to think of as being the domestic life of William Wordsworth mm. who we see as someone mm. who represents you know sort of home and hearth and order and patriarchy rather than a kind of incestuous chaos. And as a result of that, perhaps, Dorothy in previous biographies has been seen as a casualty and a virgin yes. and someone who's cold and yes. sort of closed up. And I wondered to what extent you felt you were sort of rescuing her from her previous biographers in this, in this book because your view of her is very different from that. Well, I um, oh, I feel as if I um, she really does need rescuing. And what's I mean, what's extraordinary, I think, about the way she's been represented in biographies, either of her alone or of um, group biographies with the other romantics, is that she's gone through some kind of biographical lobotomy, whereby she's been stripped of having any unconscious life, any sexuality, any desires of her own. She's just she just is William Wordsworth's unconscious life, and you can see that the reason this has happened is because she had 
all three in abundance. She had an enormous amount of unconscious life, desire and sexuality, but it was all, they were all orientated towards her brother, which is of course fantastically inconvenient mm. for, <laughs> for Wordsworthians. And that, that doesn't mean to say that her relationship with, with William was, um, was consummated or even sexual, but there's no doubt at all, and I, I think it almost certainly wasn't, but I think there's no doubt at all that she fixed her sexuality and libido on him and never mm. moved on. And so she's been, she's been represented as a very safe and twee figure, precisely in proportion to the extent to which she's dangerous. I think yeah. she's a very dangerous and restless and wild figure, and um, she's an extremely disruptive force in um, in romanticism and in the Wordsworth home. And so she's been um, she's been sanitised, mm. I think. And do you think the degree of that that fixing on William is in part due to the losses that she sustained as a young child? Because her mother died when she was seven. Yeah. She was sent away from home, away from her father, away from her four brothers. And so loss was kind of was kind of written into her story right from the start. I, th I think absolutely, without without any doubt at all, that's what happened. That she was her home was her family home was broken up in such a violent and completely unexpected way. She was the only daughter of five children. She had four she had four brothers, and her her mother went away to London to see friends and came back and died. And suddenly Dorothy hadn't only lost her mother, but she'd lost her family home as well because it was apparently her mother's dying wish that Dorothy be raised by a cousin of hers in Halifax, which was completely the other side of the country to, to Cockermouth where they were living. So Dorothy lost her brothers and her father and her family home and her mother all at once and went age seven to live with this very kind aunt who had another brood of sort of orphaned relations living with her as well. And I think the sense of... Uh, the sense of violence she never quite got over. She, her birthday was on Christmas Day. She was never invited back to the family home. She never went back for Christmas or for her birthday. She seemed to have been actually forgotten by them all. So when she met, after her father died, she went and lived with some very unsympathetic grandparents in Penrith and she met up with her with her brothers again but it was with William that she bonded and I think then there was a sense of absolute urgency that they must not separate ever again and they had to kind of recreate the Eden of their childhood. Mm. So moving into Dove Cottage was kind of recovery of that Eden that was the yeah. moment for which she'd been longing. I think it was it was quite a regressive move actually I mean they talked about you know planning the future but actually they were repairing the past and, and William talks about Grasmere Vale as um, as like a mother's uh, welcoming, enveloping arms, embracing their new heels and fold me in. You know, he wanted, he wanted to feel that the home was a kind of was a was a sort of mother's breast, if you like. And I love the idea of the dove. You know, it's such a maternal image, kind mm. of peace, peaceful image. And so when the two of them moved there, it's as if they were playing, they were playing at um, at being children together in an ideal, an ideal romantic situation which which really did sort of resound with so many of the 18th and early 19th century novels about uh, brothers and sisters growing up in the wilderness together in a wonderfully kind of sensitive and intuitive way and they were living out this quite sort of self-conscious kind of literary fantasy I think. And what part did Dorothy's writing play in, in this whole setup? Well, she never saw herself as a writer, and she was quite adamant that um, she didn't want to be seen as a writer because she didn't want to be in any way kind of on William's, 
you know, treading in William's face. But she started to write when they started to live together. And before they moved to Dove Cottage, she kept a journal when they were living in Al Foxton in Somerset. She kept a journal which was quite extraordinarily strong. I mean, the writing was very, very powerful. And obviously she'd been praised for this writing. And so when she decided to start writing again, in Dove Cottage. She was expecting praise. She wanted to please William. But what the, the writing takes on a quite an interesting role because she started to write not because they moved to Dove Cottage together, but because their life there would one day end. And she started her journal on the day that William left Dove Cottage. They'd been there for six months. William leaves Dove Cottage to walk to Gallow Hill Farm near Scarborough in order to propose to Mary Hutchinson and Dorothy knows that her days are numbered mm. this Eden that she's living in is going it's going it's going to be it's going to be over quite soon this particular heaven and so she decides to write this journal and she says she's going to write it to give William pleasure but in fact <laughs> it's a strange form of pleasure mm. because really what she's telling him is how much agony she feels about him going and and that the post hasn't come yet and she's waiting, waiting, waiting for him to come back. And it, I think it's quite an aggressive act, really. And, so, and then the journal takes on a kind of momentum of its own where it's partly an act of... Um, it's partly elegiac, it's partly a portrait, it's partly still life, it's partly a gift for William, it's partly in a kind of aggressive act towards William. It documents kind of almost accidentally, you know, her gradual breakdown before the marriage. But it also describes the oscillation of power between William and Dorothy, how he yeah. has it one day and she has it the next, and he's ill one day and she's ill the next. And so what seems to emerge from the pages of the journal is uh, they're not two separate people, they're one person. Mm. And what <clears throat> she's feeling about the marriage is, isn't a kind of common or garden jealousy, it's an incredibly complicated sense of separation. And do you think it's ultimately a futile question to ask whether she lived a life of self-sacrifice or of self-realisation? No, I think that's the big question, really. And I, it's, it's, it's the question I was wondering all the way through writing this book. I, I, just don't, I just don't know. I think... I, I, can't, I can't conclude there. I can't conclude there. Sometimes I think very powerfully it was all self-sacrifice. And at other times I think she had the most extraordinary life. And it was so, so radically different and better in terms of self-realisation than any other woman's life at that time. When you think about what she could have been doing, and she, had she stayed, had she not sort of practically eloped with William, she'd have stayed as a helper in a relations home, like Fanny Price in Mansfield Park, as a kind of poor relation, looking after babies and teaching Sunday school, and being, you know, probably sort of turning down marriage proposals from quite dreary men and leading a very conventional and ordinary life when, in fact, what she had was this, she had a couple of years of extraordinariness. I was talking to Frances Wilson about the Ballad of Dorothy Wordsworth, which is available now. My final guest today is Peter Carey. In his illegal self, Carey's 10th novel, a young woman called Dial, who has just landed her dream job teaching at Vassar College, finds herself, through a sequence of events linked to her past, on the run. With her is seven-year-old Che, who believes she is his mother. They'll soon find themselves half a world away from Che's Upper East Side home in a hippie community in rural Queensland. I asked Peter about the origins of the book. Part of it is an incident in, in you know, 30 years ago in Australia when I was living in this 
hippie community where there's this gorgeous, lovely thing where no one ever asks you what you do. And it is very nice. You live somewhere and no one asks you what you do. Mm. And they really, because mm. you're just there. Anyway, well, so this American guy came and he was perfectly pleasant. And, uh, and he lived there for a while. And then one day there was this huge police raid with helicopters and whatever. We were not used to the helicopters too much. And um, he was wanted apparently for conspiracy to import cocaine into the United States and had come to Australia where he thought he was at the end of the earth. So firstly, I was always interested in that, that he, he'd, he'd arrived in, in, in Bjelke-Peterson's Queensland and it was really, literally, not melodramatically, a police state. So if you're going to run, it's not a really a smart... Anyway, he thought he, he was in forest, he was off the... And the other thing, there were a lot of comic things that happened as we went around with jars full of 20 cent pieces trying to ring his lawyer in Galveston, Texas and ask him coded questions mm. because we thought everyone was listening to our conversations from satellites. Mm. And, uh, and I'd always sort of thought I'd like to write. I liked the environment, I liked the place. It seemed there would be something there. But that's not an idea for a book and I certainly didn't want to write about anything that really happened or that particular character. So I started to think, well, you know, maybe it's a woman and maybe it's a child. That's and I had a pick, you know, in living in that area in those days, there were always hippie mothers with single mothers on mm. the road, you know, going between, to a festival or something. And there's these little boys trudging with their hippie mothers and the little boys were always so fiercely protective of their mothers. And so any, the new lovers who arrived always had to deal mm. with the little boy, mm. you know. So I thought of them, and I didn't. At that moment, I really didn't really know who they were. I didn't know what their relationship was to each other. They had to be American because that was part of what it was. And I had this sort of image in my head of, of uh, when when there's a cyclone coming, everybody flees the area, and there's sort of people at the beaches mm. and things. And you have this sort of huge sort of stormy sky. It was really scary. And cars coming only one way with their lights yeah. on in the middle of the day. So I just thought it was like that and then going the other way. And I knew they were going to get picked up by these characters. I didn't really know what role those characters, uh, I didn't know what role Trevor, who becomes very important in the book, was going to play. Hmm. But the time, was, was it sort of the historical moment? Was that something that very, very early on was fixed in your mind when I began to write it that image is that what you mean yeah yeah that, when I began <coughs> that's the place I began to write mm. but until then of course I'm thinking about all sorts of things and I'm reading about the weatherman and I'm doing this and the because but we should, it, but it we should say the place book, to start the book takes place in the early in 1972 yeah after that sort of first wave of countercultural student resistance mm, mm. and the sort of living with the fallout of some of that in, in, in many ways in the book. Yes, absolutely. Well, I don't know when the, you know, I think the Symbionese Liberation Army were still active at mm. that time and I don't know what time. Yeah, so it was not all over in 72, but uh, I needed to invent a reason why they were on the run. Yeah. And this was the reason that I invented it. And it was interesting to me because not in Queensland, but in Melbourne during the Vietnam War, I'd been sort of involved in the anti-war movement, not in a sort of an important role, but still on the board of the moratorium. Mm. I was a dog's body, really, but I was on the board. So it means you, know, you sort of know all these different people yeah. doing different things. Mm. And, you know, I had friends who were Maoists and friends who were trots and friends who were, you know, communists and... 
my Maoist friends would tell me I was going to be shot after the revolution quite cheerfully. And one was in the thing when one really believed there really was going to be a revolution, one really might get shot and get blah, blah, blah. So I was interested in, in, in exploring that time. But of course, then I had to explore it in the United States where I hadn't lived during that time. Yeah. I wanted to go on to ask you about the two characters through whose eyes we see most of what mm. happens in the book. One is the young boy mm. who believes he's, he's eight years old. He's mm. been raised by his grandmother on the Upper East mm. Side in New York, a very, I think you described as a Victorian background. And the woman he believes is his mother, who's known as Dial mm. in the book, who, who goes with him to Australia. And you, you use their two sort of perspectives quite a lot mm. and you sort of shift in and out of those. And I wanted to ask you about how you, how you sort of orchestrated that or how you found a way to, to make, especially the young boys, sort of consciousness perce- perceptions mm. credible. I, there were a lot, number of stages in this. The first thing that I did and in my initial desire was to write a book completely from the boy's point of view. And I think maybe there was something in that that was sort of protective of my own foreignness and not being American and not understanding things that I could take refuge in Mm. a child's perspective for time and Mm. get things wrong. And and in my mind, it was really being narrated by the grown-up man who was inhabiting his memory of what it was like to be a child. So it's quite a complicated thing to be going on. But it pushed the language in an interesting way that I really liked. And I was very, I very, I stubbornly adhered to it, and even when it was, I knew there was something not working. It didn't really start to click, to answer the first part of the, mm. the question, I think, until I knew what Dial knew, and I knew where she'd been, and I knew what her background was, but I hadn't written it. It started to get very boring, simply from not having enough information, and so I really needed Dial's perspective, and I needed Dial's life, and I needed to know the reader to know what was at risk for her and all that sort of stuff. And so when the, mo- the time when I finally gave in and began to do that, mm. uh, the book really clicked. The thing of, of actually inhabiting the boy's perspective was not really particularly difficult for me to do. After all, we are meant to do this. You know, I mean, we are meant to imagine what it is to be other. And if I'm a man, I'm meant to be able to write from the you know, as a woman. And if I'm white, I'm from being black. Many people think you shouldn't do these things, but I think this is what we this mm. is what we are. But do you uh, think doing it from the perspective of a child presents particular difficulties because you've got to rein in so many things, or no. and, and yet be convincing? I've never been a woman, but I have been a child, <laughs> mm. and so in terms of placing yourself in the in that position, well, I, 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 I didn't find it. A stretch. I mean, it's like you know, people. When I wrote *True History of the Kelly Gang*, people said, "Really, wasn't it terribly restrictive to be limited by Ned Kelly's vocabulary and Ned Kelly's intellectual or bookish lack of lack of lack of literary education?" So, well, no, because it's the very it's the very uh, restriction I think that really pushes the language into interesting ways mm. and makes. And after all, when we talk about all of these things, you know, about story and character, and the, the real point of the book is that, you know, to have the reader swimming in a river of words, and that, that's how the words work and how mm. the words sing that really is the thing. And that's why a plot synopsis is the most stupid thing on earth, because it just eliminates everything, you know, like the pleasure of reading, finding out what's going to happen next, and swimming in that river of words. So the thing that's very attractive about writing from 
the boy's point of view is being able to push the language into somewhere new so it's very very attractive mm. and that's I never thought about the difficulty of it I just thought what can I do to push and twist it and can that make something yeah, new and interesting the, the, the thing that is well it breaks the rules you know, it breaks the of what you meant to do you know is in terms of continually switching point of view you know within a chapter or within a where you have the child's point of view and the next second you find yourself in dial's point of mm. view you're not meant to really do that i think but people do it i think it's a, one of the great attractions of the book that yeah. that that those transitions and yeah. and also one of the other linguistic pleasures for me in reading the book was your descriptions of australian nature and the situation in which they find themselves mm. and it's very very sort of rich but very sort of compact descriptions. You talk about inky green forests and banana leaves like like f moving like fingers mm. and and afternoons slow and thick like ants. And I, I wondered if that was if that was something you'd had to to work on carefully to get that to pitch it the just right. I think the thing that produces those things is firstly just emotionally a, a sort of a, a certain intensity of feeling and almost impatience. And of course, me memory. But I'm prepared to betray memory at any second to make something work. But most particularly, an increasing desire that I have to sort of get rid of everything that isn't doing something. And if you get rid of, you cut off the fat, until so you just, in the end, you, you're left with the thing you want to say, and then you want to nail it to the next thing you want to say. And if you can do that, you'll you may make something new, and mm. you may make something quite beautiful, and still be coherent, of course, and still yes. not leave the. Re re so, the, the sort of distillation or the cutting away is something I've sort of become rather obsessed with, and it's a great source of pleasure too. I was talking to Peter Carey, whose new novel, His Illegal Self, is in the shops now. You can listen to extended versions of all the interviews on this podcast by going to Faber's website at www.faber.co.uk. You can also listen to the authors reading extracts from their work there. Next month's podcast will include an interview with Irish novelist Sebastian Barry. You can make sure you don't miss that by subscribing free at iTunes. There's a link on Faber's website, or simply visit iTunes and type Faber in the search box. Now it only remains for me to thank you for listening and say goodbye until next time.